There are all sorts of arguments against Sola Scriptura that are thrown at Protestants regularly on the internet. Most of them basically imitate the same structure and have been answered before. But recently I saw a new argument against Sola Scriptura that I thought was super fascinating. At least it was new to me. It may be somewhere out there on the internet that I didn't know about. And it's by a channel called Redeemed to Rome. Sorry, Reformed to Rome, which I assume means that they used to be Reformed Protestant and they now are Roman Catholic. That's an assumption. I don't actually know that for sure. So I watched the video and unfortunately felt like it definitely fell short of disproving Sola Scriptura. I guess fortunately for me, otherwise I'd be changing churches. And so thought I'd make a video real quick to explain why in hopes of furthering the conversation and helping contribute to people who may be persuaded by arguments like this. So on this video today, we're going to examine the argument that this channel made against Sola Scriptura. We're going to explain why it falls short. And then before the end, we'll even build up a positive argument for Sola Scriptura from the content that we discussed today. But before we start with that, I actually want to quickly explain what Sola Scriptura is. Sola Scriptura is the principle that Holy Scripture, the Bible, is the only rule of faith for Christians that is infallible. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't other rules of faith. For example, you could have the 39 Articles if you're Church of England or the Westminster Confession of Faith. Those are rules of faith but they aren't rules of faith that are infallible. That distinction is there, and that word is critical, the word infallible. And in fact, as you'll see in a minute, I think that's actually the word that brings this whole argument down to its knees. And so what does that word mean, infallible? Well, infallible, you see the word foul in there, it means unable to fail. What this can sometimes get confused with is the word inerrant, which means without error. And this is an important distinction to make, it's critical. For example, me. I am not infallible. I'm just a normal, average Joe. But that doesn't mean I can't make an inerrant statement. If I say 2 plus 2 equals 4, that was inerrant. It was without error. But that doesn't mean that I am infallible. However, if something is infallible, for example, God, God is unable to fail. He's infallible. Therefore, he is also inerrant. So if you're infallible, you're definitely going to be inerrant because if you can't fail, you're not going to make an error. But if you happen to be inerrant in a situation, that doesn't necessarily mean that you are infallible. So hopefully that clears that up a little bit, and we'll actually get at that a little bit more as we look at this content. To prove that Acts 15 disproves Sola Scriptura, we have the following summary of arguments. Sola Scriptura requires Scripture to be the sole infallible rule of faith, the Jerusalem Council decree is an infallible rule of faith outside of Scripture. Sola Scriptura is thus definitionally untrue as defined. This is his basic argument. Sola Scriptura requires Scripture to be the sole infallible rule of faith. Totally agree. His second point is the Jerusalem Council decree is an infallible rule of faith outside of Scripture. That's what we're going to bring into question. And then his conclusion is Sola Scriptura is thus definitionally untrue as defined. And this is why it's critical to understand the difference between infallible and inerrant. Must we say that the Jerusalem Council, which is described in Acts 15, is infallible, that that council was unable to fail? Or can we simply say that the decrees of that council, guided by the Holy Spirit, are inerrant, meaning that there isn't an error that they made in their decision? So the burden of proof is actually for him not to just prove that it's an inerrant decision, but that it's actually an infallible council. Acts 15 affirms the infallibility of the content of the decree, assuming infallibility of scripture to which proponents of Sola Scriptura generally hold. Now, the important question, was the decree infallible before Luke recorded it in Acts 15? 
or was it made infallible by Luke recording it in Acts 15? He says, Acts 15 affirms the infallibility of the content of the decree. The question is, does it affirm the infallibility of the content? He argues that because what was decided in this council has been included in scripture and scripture is infallible, therefore the content of the decree when it was made, when the council was going on well before the book of Acts was written, at that time, that very content was infallible. He, this is his misunderstanding of the difference between infallibility and inerrancy. Is it true that scripture quoting something means that thing is infallible? That's obviously not correct. For example, in the very same book, the book of Acts in the Bible, to just two chapters after this moment in Acts 15, in chapter 17, verse 28, Paul quotes a pagan poetry to argue for the one true God. He says, for in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his children. Paul here is quoting a pagan philosopher or a pagan poet, and obviously it's recorded in infallible scripture, but does that mean that this poem, when it was written, what, that means it's infallible? No, of course not. So that's one example just of why this argument doesn't work, that if it's recorded in Acts 15, it was clearly infallible when it was decided upon. But aside from that, as Christians, we can believe that the results of the Jerusalem Council were inerrant, without error, without believing that the council itself was infallible, meaning in its very nature, by necessity, unable to fail. And some people might argue, well, if this council was able to fail, why do you trust it at all? And this just wasn't historically a big problem for Christians. Just because something is able to fail doesn't mean you can't rely upon it. You see that in, for example, the writings of Augustine. He says himself in, the, in his writings on baptism, he says that the councils themselves, which are held in several districts and provinces, which would be like local councils, must yield beyond all possibility of doubt to the authority of plenary councils, which are formed for the whole Christian world. That would be ecumenical councils, for example. So you have smaller councils not being infallible, that they must yield to the decisions of the bigger ecumenical councils. Well, are those ecumenical councils infallible? We continue. And that even of those plenary councils, the earlier are often corrected by those which follow them, when by some actual experiment things are brought to light which were before concealed. So even the ecumenical councils in Augustine's worldview aren't themselves infallible. They may make some inerrant judgments. They may make authoritative judgments, which are binding on the church because of the authority of these people. That doesn't mean that they are infallible and thus should be subject to revision and review if it's determined that they were wrong. But let's continue with Redeemed to Rome's video. Since the decree was not issued as scripture, it was outside of scripture. Being recorded in scripture doesn't make it scripture beforehand same as scriptural citations of uh, secular writings or pagan authors. It's interesting here that he brings up the pagan authors, but because he's stuck on the idea that infallibility and inerrancy are essentially the same thing, he misunderstands that just because the New Testament recognizes something as inerrant and includes it in holy scripture, that doesn't mean that the source of the thing itself was infallible, as we've already talked about. And at the end there, when he discusses being recorded in scripture doesn't make the thing being referenced scripture, that's exactly the point that I'm making. Just because scripture references something, even to the degree of a council, that doesn't make it scripture beforehand, it also doesn't make it infallible. Now we have succeeded in technically refuting the definition of sola scriptura, that scripture is the only infallible rule of faith, since the decree 
was an infallible rule of faith circulated outside of scripture. At this point, he claims success, and it's just obvious to anyone who understands the distinction that he hasn't proven that the first council was infallible. In fact, he hasn't proven that any council can be infallible. Rather, he proved that the statements made in the council were without error, and thus, when Luke was writing the book of Acts, he includes them in there as things that are binding on the church, things that are authoritative and inerrant, without error. For another response video to a Catholic who's actually making the claim that Protestants don't worship God, click here to check out the video. If you enjoyed this and you want to see more response videos or you have any comments that you'd like to share with me, feel free to leave a comment below and subscribe for more content just like this. Until next time, my name is Steven and this has been My Apologies. Thank you.